Oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. That's a line from a poem entitled Marmion by Sir Walter Scott. Uh, The poem is about uh, one man falsely accusing another man of treason in an attempt to gain the affection of a woman. If you've read the whole story or the poem, uh, then you'll understand how true Scott's famous line is. But I suspect that you in your own life already know how true it is. That, oh, what a tangled web we weave when we first practice to deceive. You've probably known that. Perhaps as a child, maybe you've lied about something. Uh, And then you discover that you had to keep lying and lying and lying to keep that first lie going. And that you had, in fact, weaved a very, very tangled web, which constantly tripped you up. How are we finally delivered from that tangled web of deceit? Well, God in His kindness, the Lord, graciously sets His people free through salvation in His Son. And this is what we have the privilege of thinking about together this morning from Genesis chapter 29, verses 1 to 30. If you haven't done so already, let me invite you to open your Bibles, turn in your Bibles, or one of those Bibles provided to Genesis chapter 29. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, I think you can find the passage beginning on page 23. As we look at God's Word together this morning, we continue to follow Jacob's life. As we learned in our last study of Jacob's life, we, we see that Jacob, he was devoted to the Lord. But that doesn't mean that he is fully depending upon the Lord. And perhaps it's happened in your life, right? You've devoted yourself to the Lord, and you've discovered that actually there's more of your life to give to the Lord, more to depend upon Him for. From here on out, Jacob is going to learn, and really learn the hard way, the consequences of his deceit, and what it means for him to depend upon the Lord. Over the course of his life, he will learn what it means from to, to move from trusting himself, trusting his strength, his craftiness, his wit and wisdom, to trusting his heavenly Father. As I said, maybe that's happening for you. Uh, maybe that is what has brought you here today. Maybe you're coming to realize that you haven't been depending upon God, but upon yourself. Maybe you're on the same journey that Jacob is on. Maybe you're on a journey of growth in grace. Learning your need of deliverance from self-dependence and deceit. Beloved, that's the sermon in a sentence, really. That God delivers us from self-dependence and deceit. God delivers us from self-dependence and deceit. We're going to unpack Genesis 29, verses 1 to 30, in two sections, under two headings. First, our self-dependence. We're going to see that happening in Jacob's life. And then we're going to think about God's deliverance. That's the outline, really. I believe there's an outline in your bulletin, which will help you follow along. Let's begin with our first point, our self-dependence. Jacob is, in some ways, a mirror for us. Uh, Follow along as I read Genesis 29, verses 1 to 14. Now, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. 
He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go. Pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? And we'll pause there in this reading of God's Word. And notice the first three verses. They kind of set the scene for our chapter. Jacob, he's, he's on a journey, and he's energized. If, if you recall from our last study, Jacob has been sent away from home to find a wife. Uh, that ought to put a spring in the step of any man. But one of the first nights on his journey, the Lord met him in a dream. Uh, the Lord formally promised to Jacob in that dream that he would receive the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant. God pledged himself, his power, his presence to Jacob. He pledged to give Jacob lineage and land. He pledged to give Jacob a people and a place to dwell. And so in response to these divine promises, Jacob pledged himself to the Lord. Jacob would take Yahweh as his God and Jacob would devote himself to God. It's with all of this hope in his heart that he makes this journey to the east, to the place where his mother was found as a bride for his father. So he's replaying what has taken place in his parents' life in some way. In fact, there are all kinds of thematic and linguistic connections between what we read here and what we studied in Genesis chapter 24 a couple of weeks ago when Abraham's servant was sent on a journey to find a wife for Isaac, Jacob's father. Moses intends for us, I think, to compare and contrast those two occasions. Because though Jacob has been made new by that miraculous dream from the Lord, he has not been made mature. That's one of the things that you need to recognize about your own spiritual journey. Growing to maturity in Jesus will take time. It will take trials and lessons in trusting the Lord. Uh, keeping one finger here, I want us to look at what happens. Just a brief look at what happened back in Genesis chapter 24. So flip back and find the verse 10 of Genesis chapter 4. And I want you to see that one of the most striking differences between the journey to find a wife that Abraham's servant takes in Genesis 24 and Jacob's journey to find a wife that we're looking at in Genesis 29 is really a difference in dependence. Follow along as I read verses 10 to 14 from Genesis 24. <clears throat> then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. 
And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord Yahweh, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now let's just take a quick look at these verses. Notice that in these verses, though he comes with a whole bunch of wealth, camels and all these gifts, notice that it's not the prosperity of his master that this servant is depending upon. He does not depend upon his own persuasive powers. Rather, he depends upon the providence and the power of God. That's why he prays. And notice, too, that he prays specifically and precisely. He wants specific events to unfold and even specific words to come out of a young woman's mouth. And it's only the Lord who can orchestrate this. He tells God why he wants such a specific and precise answer at the end of verse 14. He wants to be sure that this is God's will. He wants God to make it clear to him that God is the one making the decisions. That this is the one for Isaac. And he wants God to show his steadfast love, his covenant love to his master. When Abraham's servant arrived at the well, he depended upon God. He asked for direction from God. He prayed to God. Now flip back to our text in Genesis 29. And run your eyes across verses 1 to 3. And even into verse 4. If you look at Genesis 29, what does Jacob do when he turns up at the well? Does he he pray? Does he ask for direction? Does he depend upon God to make it clear where he needs to go and what he needs to do? Not at all. And let's just reflect upon this for our own hearts and lives for just a moment. Consider your own approach to life. And perhaps your own prayerlessness. Could that be? Might that be sometimes an indication that you're depending upon yourself rather than upon God? Jacob is not depending upon God's strength. He's depending upon his own strength. And Moses, he prepares us for that by telling us about the well and the size of the stone that covered it. And when Jacob saw the stone, he should have remembered the stone that he erected at Babel. Sorry, Bethel. Where God promised to protect him, to provide for him, and to give him a people. Marriage is God's first step in having children. And that stone should have reminded him to depend upon the Lord's promise and power. The Lord's providence to orchestrate everything that needed to happen. For Jacob, for the promises of God to be fulfilled in Jacob's life. At this well, we don't find Jacob depending we find him directing the local shepherds around. It's quite remarkable. I mean, did you notice that in verses 4 to 8? Jacob and the shepherds, they have this polite and kind of informative conversation, right? Jacob asks where they're from, whether or not they know Laban. They just goes, oh, we know, we know that guy. Um, and that actually his daughter is coming to the well. And with that, Jacob, he starts ordering these guys around, right? He tells them what time of day it is. 
And what they should do, I mean, how thick does he think these guys are? Right? They don't know what time of day it is. You know? Does he really presume to know more about how to take care of their sheep in their place than they do? I mean, they've got a custom. Right? They, they wait until everyone is gathered there. And then they water their flocks together. And beloved, there's, a, there's actually a practical lesson for us here. Right? When you turn up to some new place, you'll be wise to listen and learn the customs of that place. Right? People may have different reasons for doing what they do and why they do it and when they do it. And I think humility means learning before leading. And children, may I suggest to you that you have wonderful guides in your lives. Uh, you are still somewhat new to this place, to this world, but your parents have been here long before you. And in humility, let them lead you around and show you the way. Let, listen to them and learn from them about what is kind of proper behavior wherever you go. Uh, they can serve you well. They kind of want to prevent you from making some of the same mistakes that you know, they made in their lives. Uh, Jacob, he should, he should have a sense of the need to do things decently and in order. Because of his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. I don't know if you remember this, but Abraham and Isaac, they actually fought over wells with shepherds. And so there's a good reason to have a custom and an agreement about how to use a well, and when to use a well. These guys clearly have their own system that allows them to peaceably share the well. And Jacob, he's running roughshod over all of that in ordering them around. Uh, Jacob's likely actually trying to get rid of them so that he can talk to Rachel, right? Uh, you see his true nature is coming out. He's, he's scheming for some alone time with this girl. He wants these guys to be gone so that he can get the girl. In verse 9, Moses, he introduces us to Rachel. And he does it, he does it in the same way that he actually introduced Rebecca to us back in Genesis chapter 24, verse 15. We didn't read that verse, but if you remember, before Abraham's servant finished speaking to God in prayer, Rebekah came to the well. Here, while Jacob is still speaking, not to God, but to those shepherds, Rachel, she comes to the well. And we're told that Rachel was a shepherdess. Uh, I believe this is actually the only time in the Bible when a woman is called a shepherdess. This is ordinarily a task uh, and calling for men to do. Anyway, Rachel arrives, and Jacob is in awe. I mean, he, he checks her out. And her sheep. I mean, I don't, did you notice that in verse 10? Look at verse 10. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. I mean, Jacob wants the girls and he wants the girl and the goods, right? He, he kind of does this great show of force that he's a man who's, who's worthy for a conversation with him. His response, it's really different than that of Abraham's servant in that respect, isn't it? Whereas Abraham's servant prayed and waited patiently to reveal whether or not this was the one, Jacob kind of springs right into action. Uh, he rolls that large stone off the well, waters Rachel's flock. But remember what happened back in Genesis 24. It's much different than what happened here. Jacob, he expends that great deal of energy in caring for Rachel's flock. Whereas in Genesis 24, Rebekah spent a great deal of effort and energy watering the flock of Abraham's servant. Jacob is showing Rachel, right? He's a, he's a strong man. He's very capable. He shows her in verse 11 that he's also a sensitive man. Strong, but sensitive. That's a winning combination, right? I mean, he, uh, he kisses her, which actually is not entirely unusual. I mean, kissing someone on the cheek was a common greeting in the ancient Near East. But what Jacob does next is somewhat unusual. He cried aloud. 
I mean, this is an interesting turn of phrase. Jacob uh, may very well believe that this meeting from Rachel was from the hand of God. But he doesn't acknowledge it on his lips in any way, shape, or form. After all, from his perspective, uh, he might be thinking, that, look, this is unfolding the same way it did for my mom and my dad. But there's a significant difference. When Abraham's servant believed that he found the one for Isaac back in Genesis chapter 24, verse 26, he bowed down in worship. He acknowledged the Lord's leading. Jacob, on the other hand, doesn't worship. He, he weeps. And the language that's used of Jacob weeping here in verse 11 is the same language that was actually used of Esau when he discovered that he had been deceived. Moses is beginning to prepare us for Jacob's deception. He's being drawn in already. It will be his dependence upon himself, his strength, his wit and wisdom that will lead to his blindness and his downfall. Uh, this must have been somewhat awkward. Right? We, we've known of like third wheels in kind of a situation, but there are shepherds standing around watching all of this, right? You kind of wonder what these, these guys are thinking as they see Jacob greet Rachel and weep. Uh, all of this happens before he explains who he is and what he is doing there in verse 12. And this sends Rachel running home. That's exactly actually what Rebecca did back in Genesis chapter 24, verse 28, after she met Abraham's servant. Laban, right, he got a good deal from Abraham's house the last time, and he's probably no doubt looking for a good deal this time. Uh, do you see what happens there in verses 13 and 14? Laban, he runs to meet Jacob. He embraces him. Moses is foreshadowing that Laban is going to uh, arrange a marriage. And, and Laban even uses the language of Adam's marriage vows to Eve back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, when he says, Surely you are my bone and flesh. But notice that Laban doesn't say this until after Jacob told Laban all these things. I've puzzled over that phrase. It's an interesting phrase, all these things. Jacob told Laban all these things. I and mean, what do you think that included? Maybe it included the events that had kind of just transpired at the well. He told me he removed the stone, watered his flock. Look, I've served you. I've served your family. But I'm convinced it must have included the reason that Jacob was on his journey. I mean, that's what the servant did. He told Laban his household why he was on his journey. Jacob had to tell Laban that his father and mother sent him to find a wife. He probably had to tell Laban that though he was the younger son of Rebekah, he had received the promise, blessing of his father's wealth. Abraham's servant turned up with a bunch of gifts, but Jacob turned up with nothing. He had to convince Laban that he was a suitable suitor. And I'm almost certain that Laban is putting the pieces of the puzzle together. Okay, so you're the younger son who has received the older son's birthright and blessing? Can't you see Laban saying to himself, You are a schemer. You are my kid. You are my bone and flesh. And what Jacob doesn't know is he's just met his match. He has met a more capable deceiver than him. I mean, Laban is older and wiser and craftier, and he is more of an opportunist than even Jacob. Laban's a seasoned veteran in the school of deceit. Jacob's deception is going to boomerang back to him. He's going to have to learn that he can't depend upon himself. That he actually can't depend upon lies to bring him wealth and prosperity. He's going to have to depend upon the Lord. And Laban's household will be one of the Lord's schools of learning for Jacob. 
Verse 14 tells us that Jacob stayed for a month, but he's about to stay much, much longer. And beloved, I want you to notice Jacob's posture in the first 14 verses of the chapter. We can construe Jacob's actions really in the best possible light. Uh, we can recognize that Jacob was motivated and encouraged by the revelation of the Lord from the last chapter. We, we can say that Jacob had a servant's heart as he, you know, served those shepherds and removed the stone and Rachel by watering the flock. But, but just let me ask you again, where is the Lord in all of Jacob's speaking? Where is the Lord in all of Jacob's doing? The name of the Lord is not on his lips at all. Prayers to the Lord are not going up to heaven. He makes no call for help or for wisdom from above. Unlike Abraham's servant, he makes no connection to God and his providence for leading him to Laban's house. I mean, how providential was it that he turned up to that well, that those guys knew Laban, the very man's house he was trying to actually get to. And he doesn't connect the dots and praise and honor the Lord for leading him safely along this journey and to this place. He's dependent upon himself the whole way. And Jacob will need to be delivered from that self-dependence. He will need to be delivered from deceit. And in verses 15 to 30, Jacob, he tastes the bitter fruit of what it is, what it is like to be deceived. Right up to this point, he has only fed the rotten fruit of deceit to his father and his brother. He's mistreated his kinsmen, his family. But now he's going to taste it for himself. He'll learn that he's going to need to be delivered from it. So let's turn and consider our second point, God's deliverance. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 29, verses 15 to 30. Genesis 29, verses 15 to 30. <clears throat> then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak or soft, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter, Rachel, to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant, Bilhah, to his daughter, Rachel, to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also. 
And he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now, (coughs) up to verse 15, everything appeared to be going according to plan. Right? According to one commentator, one commentator said the, the plan of Jacob's mother seemed to be working very well. Uh, everything was running very smoothly. Esau had been left behind at a safe distance. Remember, Esau was mad at, at Jacob for stealing his blessing. He had left, been left behind at a safe distance. He made this long journey from Beersheba to Padan Aram, and he had covered without and covered that distance without harm. Right, five hundred miles. Uh, little or no difficulty had been experienced in locating his mother's brother. Uh, Rachel had shown no resentment at Jacob's affectionate greeting. And now Laban himself had accorded the fugitive a, a warm welcome. And for a whole month, nothing seems to have broken their serenity. That's what one brother reflected upon, right? I mean, we could summarize it this way. So far, so good, right? But things change when Laban prompts Jacob with that question. But apparently, Jacob had been earning his keep. He'd been working under Laban's roof for a month. And since Jacob had shared everything with Laban, verse 13, Laban now knows that he has to come to some sort of arrangement. Like a good negotiator, Laban does not make the first offer, right? Uh, but before we get to that deal, in verse 16, Moses tells us about Laban's two daughters. He mentions three things. He mentions their names, their age, and their appearance. First, Moses, he mentions their names, Leah and Rachel. Leah's name means, do you know it? Cow. Got to be careful not to milk that name. Um, Rachel's name means sheep or lamb, uh, which is fitting for her labors as a shepherdess, right? Uh, Moses, he then mentions their age. The older was Leah and the younger was Rachel. Now, any Hebrew listening to this story would have immediately picked up on those words, older and younger. Uh, Immediately, they would have remembered God's promise to Rebekah in Genesis chapter 25, verse 23, when she had Jacob and Esau in her womb, where we were told the older shall serve the younger. Esau was older, and Jacob was younger. Leah is older. Rachel is younger. Moses is cluing us in on the fact that this is going to play a role in what happens, what unfolds. Last time, in God's mysterious providence, He, God, turned the order upside down. After Moses tells us their age, He tells us of their appearance in verse 17. We read there, Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Hebrew scholars have kind of struggled over the description of Leah's eyes. I think the Pew Bibles have a footnote indicating the the word for weak can also be translated soft. Uh, Other possible translations are dull or ordinary, or even delicate, or tender. Um, Whatever the case may be, the the contrast between Leah and Rachel is clear. Rachel was the more renowned beauty. Uh, Jacob has fallen for Rachel. It was love at first sight when he saw that sheep. And don't forget when he saw her sheep, right? Jacob is being led by his eyes. That's why Rachel's description in verse 17 is so closely connected with Moses' comment there in verse 18 that Jacob loved Rachel. He loved Rachel because of how she looked. Which leads me to wonder, if we could exchange the word for lust instead of the word for love as Jacob thinks about Rachel. When I was, um, when I was young, under six or seven or so, my, my parents led a young married group uh, back at their church in Arkansas, at our church in Arkansas. 
And a few years ago, I asked my dad, what were some of the lessons that he taught those, those young married people in that group? And I remember my dad telling me uh, that one of the things he had to constantly teach these young married people was that love was more than lust. That love was more than lust. Love is a covenant and a commitment that will not let go. The physical attraction and appearance are not unimportant, but they are not all important or most important. Wedding vows are needed because when the ugliness of sin comes out of our hearts and lives and mouths, we need something stronger than chemical reactions in our bodies to bind us together and keep us together. Love is more than affection. It is affection combined with assurance. Love is actually a pledge of allegiance. And that necessarily means it is a commitment to the exclusion of others. Love says, I will never leave you or forsake you. Wherever you go, I will go. Where you die, there I will be buried. Love is long-suffering. Love waits in faith and hope. Love is humble. Love does not seek its own glory, but seeks the glory of another. Love chooses to believe the best. Such allegiance actually moves us toward brokenness with the commitment to forgive. And such allegiance shows us that love is beautifully stubborn. I will keep loving you day after day, year after year. Love is beautifully stubborn in that way. Love includes affection, it gives assurance, it pledges allegiance, and it requires sacrificial action. Listen to how active love is, according to the Apostle Paul, as he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 8. He says, Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. I mean, think of God and His love for the people of Israel. He tells them in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 7, that He set His love upon them, not because they were more in number than any other nation. They weren't more attractive than other options out there. God didn't love Israel because they were the more attractive choice. Think about Jesus and His love for us. Right? Jesus, He had compassion for lost sheep. He assures us that we will not be lost. He pledges to be our God and our groom. And He lays down His life for us. Jesus didn't love us because we were like Rachel. Jesus didn't love us because we were beautiful in form and appearance. Now, according to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, Jesus cleansed us. Which means what? We were dirty and needed to be washed. We were weak in eye and soul. And He set His love upon us. Jacob loves with his eyes. He is depending upon his eyes to bring him happiness in marriage. And thus the fulfillment of God's promises. And it will be his eyes that fail him. In verse 18, Jacob, he comes out with his deal. Right? He is uh, willing to serve Laban for seven years for his younger daughter, Rachel. And there it is again. Notice that. Moses is alerting us again to the younger and older dynamic. Remember who's first hearing these words. It's the people of God in the wilderness 
who've received the law of God. They're on their way to the promised land of Canaan. They have learned in Exodus 21 verse 2 and Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 12 that um, those who serve masters are to serve for six years and then to be released in the seventh year. In other words, all debts were canceled in the seventh year. So Jacob, he's, he's offering to be Laban's son-in-law, to become in and become his servant. But in reality, he will actually be his slave, not just for seven years or seven more years, but for closer to 20 years. And in verse 19, a Laban, he agrees to the terms of Jacob's deal. Laban is setting the trap. He is preparing to deceive the deceiver. And as we come up to verse 20, we think, oh, how sweet, right? Jacob served seven years for Rachel. And they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her. Jacob, he's been fully drawn in. The time between the deal and the wedding day was short in his estimation. Just as the time was short between the time that Isaac promised to bless Esau and Jacob came in to deceive his father and steal the blessing. But notice Jacob's demand there in verse 21. Give me my wife that I may go into her for my time is completed. Young men, if you ever ask for a woman's hand in marriage from her father, don't ever do it like this. I mean, Jacob is possessive. Do you see this? She is my wife. Jacob is pointed. I want to go into her. Jacob is impatient. My time is completed. We are done. He will have what belongs to him, and he will not be denied. And this just reminds us again of how Jacob is operating in his life. He's depending upon himself. He will have what belongs to him. He is the one who is securing this bride. Not God. It's not the Lord. Jacob has not asked for any help from the Lord. From his perspective, he made the journey to Haran. He removed the stone in his strength. He found the right girl. He convinced the father. He put out the labor required to obtain her hand. And now he will fulfill God's promises by his power. Remember that this story about Jacob is set in the larger context of the book of Genesis, right? Of God keeping His promises to send a Messiah and rescue His people from their sins through the line of Abraham, through Abraham's family and offspring. And Jacob's in that line. Now Jacob is going to have a bride so that he can have a brood. He can start the work. He can start the work. He can accomplish the work of having children as the dust of the earth. But God's promises come by God's Power. That's the lesson that the book of Genesis has taught us over and over again. God's promises do not come by man's power. They come by God's power. And that means that in the end, Jacob is really actually going to be humbled. He, he will need to learn to depend upon the Lord and not on himself. And in God's wise providence, he permitted the sin that Jacob was so familiar with and so good at be turned back upon him. I mean, Jacob will learn the depths and the dangers of deceit. And this is actually a biblical principle. Proverbs 26 verse 27 teaches us that whoever digs a pit falls into it. And a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. Our sins often boomerang back to us. Jacob will get what he gave. He deceived Esau and his father, and he will now be deceived. And friends, let's, beloved, let's be aware of this general and kind of natural order in God's world. 
Sin swings back around. Don't think that you can duck your depravity. Don't think that you can duck your depravity. It, it, it hits you when you least expect it. That's what happens for Jacob. I mean, verse 22 is subtle. Verse 23 is shocking. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. I mean, how bold and brash this was of Laban to make such a public swap. How cruel he was as a father to make Leah marry a man who loves her sister. How cruel he was to Rachel. How cruel he was to Jacob, who he had called his brother and his kinsman. This is not how you treat family. This is wicked and sinful. And Moses uses language that indicates this. Over and over again, in verses 21 to 29, we read the language of giving and taking. It's the same language that was used of Sarah when she took her servant Hagar and gave her to Abraham in Genesis chapter 16, verse 3. When she tried to fulfill the promises of God in her own power. It's the same language actually used in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. When Eve was deceived, she took of the fruit and gave it to Adam. Jacob and everyone else there had no doubt consumed alcohol. I mean, weddings are celebratory times. A celebratory feasts were often an occasion for, for drinking. Uh, Leah was likely veiled, hiding her eyes to a certain degree. And Jacob, as we've already seen, he's determined. Right? He had already demanded what he wanted. And like a fool, he rushed in. The drinking, the demanding, and the determination had all dimmed his eyes. Just like his father Isaac's eyes were dimmed when he had been deceived. Make no mistake, everyone there was culpable and responsible. Jacob sinfully demanded. Uh, nor did he depend upon the Lord. Laban sinfully deceived. Leah and Rachel sinfully yielded to their father's wicked plan. In the end, Jacob consummated the marriage with Leah. And the Old Testament witness ties sexual intercourse to the consummation and ratification of the covenant of marriage. Sexual intercourse, as it were, is the sign and seal of the marriage covenant between a man and a woman. The deed was done. And in the morning, Jacob exclaims, What is this you have done? These were the very words, actually, that Pharaoh spoke to his grandfather Abraham. After Abraham had deceived Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister. They were the very words that Abimelech spoke to his father Isaac. After Isaac had deceived Abimelech about Rebekah. Jacob utters the very words that God spoke to Eve in the Garden of Eden when he confronted her in sin. Jacob comes from a family of deceivers. The human family. And now he has been deceived. Jacob is attempting to rebuke Laban when he asks, Did I not serve you for Rachel? In verse 25, he's recalling the specific terms of their deal that he and Laban made back there in verses 18 and 19. The Old Testament law in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, declares, You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. Rachel, in their deal, was the wage. And Laban had deceived Jacob and robbed him. Laban had called Jacob his brother and kinsman, but he had treated him worse than a slave. Beloved, let us learn a spiritual lesson here. Our sin is a terrible master. It is enslaving. It never pays. And when it does, it only piles more sin on top of sin. That's actually what happens with Jacob and Laban in the verses that follow. More sin is piled on top of sin. 
And we need redemption from the endless enslavement and increasing iniquity. I mean, look at what Laban says there in verse 26. Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Jacob had intended to rebuke uh, Laban, but Laban is now rebuking Jacob. Both men are wrong, but Laban's rebuke includes his reasoning. He actually wanted to appear upstanding in the eyes of the community around him. Right? He, he wanted to abide by the local custom. This is how we do things here. He didn't want to be, appear to be out of step with the society around him. Laban kind of in effect says, right, uh, they may do it that way in Canaan. Right? Um, remember, you got your older brother's birthright and blessing. Yeah, yeah. They may do it that way in Canaan, but we don't do that, we don't do it that way here. You're, you're not in Canaan anymore, Jacob. It's time for you to start living like the world you're in. Uh, kind of Laban's governing principle was actually friendship with the world. And how often is that our motivation? How often do we want to make sure that we're in step with the world around us? There's a little Laban in each one of us. He was wrong. If this was his motivation, he should never have made the deal in the first place. Even so, when Laban rebukes Jacob, Jacob should have listened closely to what he said. I mean, Laban's words were called the younger and the firstborn, the younger and the older. He, the younger, had deceived his father for the blessing of the firstborn. Jacob had turned the tables, right? And now Jacob had been deceived with Laban turning the tables. Laban's words should have taught Jacob a lesson. Live not by lies. Don't live depending upon your craftiness, your wit, your wisdom, your scheming, or your strength. Live depending upon the Lord. And Jacob should have immediately repented. He should, not, he should have decided right then and right there that he's not going to live for the desires of his heart, but the desires of the Lord's heart. Right In verse 27, when Laban offered him Rachel as a bride as well, Jacob should have said no. He should have said, It was my desire to have Rachel, but it is clearly the Lord's desire for me to have Leah. I will depend upon the Lord. I will trust His decisions. I will follow where He leads. I will love the woman He has placed in my arms. I will build a house according to His pattern. I will live upon His principle. I will walk in the strength of His power. I will hope in His promises. I will believe that He works all things together for good. And I'm going to let Him work this out. That's what Jacob should have said. The law of God is written on every human heart. Intuitively and internally, you know the difference between right and wrong because you have been made in the image of God. Even so, Leviticus chapter 18, verse 18 says this, And you shall not take a woman as a rival wife to her sister, uncovering her nakedness while her sister is still alive. Remember the first audience receiving this, the, the people of Israel, they were reading this story of Jacob and Leah and Rachel, and they would have known that what Jacob was doing was wrong. They knew that polygamy was wrong. You know that polygamy is wrong. They knew that marriage was a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. You know that marriage is a covenant union between one man and one woman for life. God only gave one bride to Adam, Eve. God only gave one bride to His Son, Jesus, the church. But this is what our culture says to do. It says, don't say no to your desires. The only way for you to be happy is if you say yes to your desires. The only way to be happy is if you do you. 
According to today's worldly definition, Jacob did nothing wrong. But you know that what Jacob is doing is wrong. You know that Jacob is acting upon his interests and his interests alone. Jacob should have only taken Leah. But he continues to trust himself and serve himself and deceive himself. So that he takes Rachel as his bride as well. Do you realize that that is what you are doing? When you keep, coddle, and protect your sin. You are depending upon yourself to manage your sin. But friend, you can never manage your sin. Sin manages you. Sin is not a servant. Sin is a master. Every time we act on our sinful desires instead of God's sovereign design, God's sovereign decree, we are choosing sin as our master instead of God. We're not depending upon God. We're deceiving ourselves. Jacob, as we see here, he he completed his honeymoon week for Leah. And then he began his honeymoon week for Rachel. It was disgusting and depraved. But at least he's happy, right? Wrong. It's, It's all wrong. It's all wrong. Look at verse 30. It's, it's so sad. So Jacob went into Rachel also. And he loved Rachel more than Leah. And served Laban for seven, another seven years. I mean, Jacob, he almost discards Leah. And gives his devotion to Rachel. Proverbs chapter 30, verses 21 to 23 says, That one of the things that the earth trembles under and cannot bear up under is an unloved woman when she gets a husband. This household is a mess. It's a complete mess. And it's actually worse than you might realize. I mean, I wonder if you notice verses 24 and 29. Read verse 24. We read there, there are kind of parenthetical comments. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. Now skip down and read verse 29. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. Along with his daughters, Leah and Rachel, Laban gave two more women to serve his daughters. In the chapters ahead, Jacob's house descends into chaos. It descends into a battle for Jacob's attention and affection. Birth wars between the sisters unfold. And they both give their servants, Zilpah and Bilhah, to Jacob as concubines. Through these four women come the twelve tribes of Israel. It is a monstrous, mangled mess through which mercy comes. I mean, these four women, Leah, Rachel, Zilpah, and Bilhah, become the mothers of Israel. A nation is birthed through them. I mean, can you imagine what the people of Israel must have been thinking as they're reading this account? They should have been thinking, we come from a deceit-filled, dysfunctional, and destructive household. How we need a deliverer. Yahweh send the Messiah that He promised. Yahweh send the Savior. Beloved, even in this mess, God is fulfilling His promises to make Jacob's descendants as the dust of the earth. Even through this, God is keeping His promises of mercy through the unloved woman, Leah. The tribe of Judah. The line of the Messiah emerges. Through the line of the unloved woman Leah will come God's one and only most beloved son. There is hope in this depraved darkness. God will rescue His people from the destruction of their deceit and self-dependence. 
God will rescue His people from the deceit that destroyed Jacob's home and Adam's home and your home. I don't know if you can believe it, but it was through deceit that our deliverance has come. I mean, do you realize that? Yes, Satan's deceit was the undoing of the human race, but do you remember how sinners were delivered by Jesus? How was it that Jesus ended up on that cross? How was it that Jesus, who totally trusted his heavenly Father, perfectly depended upon him, ended up on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me? Men schemed, and they lied, and they deceived, and that sent him to the cross. What Satan meant for evil, deception and the death of Jesus on the cross, God meant for good. The deliverance and the salvation of his people. Deceit delivered Jesus to the cross, and on the cross, Jesus delivered his people from the consequences of depravity, deceit, and eternal death. We turn things upside down in our self-dependence and deceit, and God turned them right side up in His Son. Friend, would you turn from your walking in the wrong way, walking in your way, walking in your self-dependence, self-reliance, and sin, and turn to Jesus Christ? Would you believe that Jesus lived and died and was raised again from the grave on the third day for the forgiveness of your sins? To rescue you from believing lies, from telling lies, and the eternally damning consequences of lies. Friend, turn from your self-dependence. Turn from your independence from God and trust in Jesus. Depend upon Jesus today. Stop living by the lie that you don't need anyone or anything. Because you actually need Jesus and everything He offers. You can't free yourself from that tangled web that you have weaved. But Jesus can set you free. Turn from your sins and trust in Him today. Beloved, as we conclude, can I encourage you to rejoice in the truth that God saves self-dependent deceivers like Jacob, like you, like me. Uh, Would you revel in the truth that though Satan's deceit was the undoing of the human race, that deceit, the deceit which led Jesus to the cross, was the undoing of the curse and the promise of eternal life to you. No matter the darkness or the bitter fruit that deceit has wrought in our lives, rejoice and hope and trust that out of that darkness, Jesus brings light and life. Jesus, in Jesus, there is truth, grace and truth, and we can trust Him. Jesus loves unlovely people like you and me. Let's pray together.